Tonight, I'm excited to announce that we're starting the book of James. So please turn with me to James chapter 1. This is a great time to be plugging into the Wednesday night study. If you look forward in the New Testament, it's going to go James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and Revelation. So we will finish the Bible, Lord willing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Wednesday nights. We thank you for the opportunity in the middle of our week to, to pause, to draw near to you, to, to hear your word. We ask that you'd really use uh, the book of James in our lives. It gives us a, a real reality check, brings us to a place of humility and brokenness before you. And we, God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would do a fresh work in our church, a fresh work in our lives. That even tonight as we hear your word, that we wouldn't be hearers only, but doers of your word. We don't have the strength in and of ourselves, so God, would you fill us with your spirit to change our lives. Afresh, we surrender to you. Jesus, we acknowledge that you have bought our lives with a price. We want you to have lordship of our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. James is a reality check. When you go to take your car in to get looked at, a lot of times they give you a, a reality check on the status of your car and the maintenance that needs to take place. Blood pressure is a bit of a reality check. Here it is. Here's your blood pressure. Here's what you've got to be able to deal with. And as we look at James chapter 1 specifically, we're going to see a reality check in four areas. First, in trials. How do we navigate trials? How do we get through difficulties? What is, re, what is the trial showing us about God and the condition of our own faith? And then also a reality check in humiliation. And humiliation comes from what we choose to glory in. A tough reality check in this chapter is excuses, you know? Oftentimes we'll use excuses to stay in our sin, and James deals with that uh, for us. And then finally, a reality check in growth, that we'd be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, that we'd be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. This book, the book of James, it uses the word faith 12 times. And it's really a look at authentic faith or faith defined. If we claim to believe in the Lord, then what does that result in our lives? If that, if that faith is real, then it's going to result in change in our lives. So as we study this book over the next few weeks, is jot down faith defined, authentic faith with the Lord. As it's the first week in this study of the book of James, it's important to get a little bit of background. So let's ask four questions. Who wrote the book of James? We'll see in the introduction. James, and we believe it to be the half-brother of Christ. He's the, the human author that God used. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered. So Jewish believers that have been scattered outside of Israel. These believers are going through time of difficulty, also, it seems to be a time in their own relationship with the Lord where they're struggling. Ever have those times? We have those times, don't we? And in result, they're struggling with one another. So difficult circumstances, difficult in their walk, and also difficulty in their relationships with each other. And then what do we glean from this book? What do, what do we take away from this book as we examine our own faith? We examine our own relationship with the Lord. 
If you've read or you've studied the book of James, you know it's going to be challenging. If we're honest with the Lord, we're going to be challenged tonight, and we're going to be challenged with each and every one of these chapters. But it's a good challenge. There's a sweetness to this challenge. I want you to hear the voice of a loving father that is challenging you. Each of the apostles have their own strengths and their own experiences and their own emphasis in which they they write and they pastor and they speak. And James, this apostle, to me, he's the ultimate coach. Coach James. And he's calling us out as believers and he's saying it's time to grow. It's time to get off the bench. When I was in high school in Utah, we moved to Utah before my junior and senior year of high school because of my dad's job. My basketball coach there, his name was Coach Bentrude, Mr. Bentrude. And he was just this tall Irish guy, probably 6'5", in good shape. And he loved to run the basketball program with great discipline. When class was done and you got prepared for practice, before you walked into the gym, he would give you a quote for that day. He wanted you to be thinking. He didn't want just your physical body to be strong, but he wanted your your mental capacities to be strong as well. So it'd be a pretty long quote that he would come up with. First thing with practice that he would start off with is he would look at one of the 12 of us. You know, there's 12 on the varsity team. He'd say, Eric, give me, give me the quote. And if you could tell it to him, then you had not as much running. But if you couldn't remember the, the quote, then you got the extra multiplied Coach Bentrude running. So every day you're standing by the door trying to memorize it. Everybody's trying to memorize it. And you're hoping that he doesn't call upon you. It's probably a surprise to some, but basketball, especially if you play inside the paint, which is, if you look, look at a basketball court, that's the, the box, the paint. It's where the, the taller players play. It's a physical game. Uh, to, to box out, you, you, to do it appropriately, you need to use your, your body. And so Coach Bentry would love to blow the whistle and being a big guy, get right in the paint and put some hurt on you. And in doing so, he taught you how to put the hurt on the opponents who you'd be playing. There wasn't a year that I know of that his teams didn't make it to the state tournament. Why? Because of his coaching. It really wasn't about the ability of the guys that he would get. He was going to turn them into a good team. And James is the same way. He's going to challenge us. Out of all the writings in the New Testament, he's going to challenge us. But it comes from the heart of God so that we would, would grow. I pray that God would give us fresh ears to hear the book of James as we go through it together. Let's start our journey in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, we believe it to be the half-brother of Jesus Christ because of the authoritative tone in which he writes. We know from Acts chapter 15 that James became the leader of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. We also know in Galatians 1 verse 19 that he was described as an apostle. He was considered to be one of the apostles. The Gospel of John tells us this, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. So Mary and Joseph went on to have normal husband and wife relationships. It's not that Mary continued in perpetual virginity, which resulted in children. If you don't know that, that intimacy results in children, that's how that happens. So Mary and Joseph had kids, and one of those kids was James. And he didn't believe in Christ during Christ's earthly ministry until the resurrection of Christ. 
It was the resurrection of Christ that caused James to be a believer. Imagine the perspective that James, the younger brother of Jesus, had of our Messiah, of our Savior. How would you like to grow up with God in human flesh? I mean, talk about the ultimate golden boy. You know Jesus didn't do it, right? <laughs> so definitely would point out all of your, your shortcomings. So here comes James, and he's been saved by Christ, God in human flesh, who died for his sins and rose again. It's not James' physical relationship to Jesus that causes him to have the authority to write. It's his spiritual relationship with Christ. And he doesn't introduce himself in that manner, James, the half-brother of Christ. He says, James, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, a slave by choice. He found the joy in surrendering his life to Christ. That's where freedom comes from as we choose to serve and lay our life down. This is who he's writing to, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So the church has been dispersed through persecution, through difficulty, and they're scattered all over in this time of trial and suffering and difficulty. Out of the comfort zone of the promised land and of Israel, they're dispersed. And because of them being dispersed, we find them in some of the difficulties. You'll see the tone throughout the epistle of James where the rich were taking advantage of the poor and they found themselves in this place as refugees, if you would, that could be taken advantage of. And James says, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So first reality check is trials trials. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. If you're a Bible underliner, you'll see in this passage some things to underline or take note of, and the first is to count, and it is a mathematical term, to reckon. So in the midst of trial, to stop and try to see things from God's perspective and count it all joy. So if you're in a trial tonight, this is something that God would desire for you to do, is to say, I am going to stop and realize what God's doing in my life through this difficulty. This instruction, joy and trial, seems to be an oxymoron, like civil war. Those words don't really go together, right? How is war civil? How about icy hot? How about mall food? That's an oxymoron. <laughs> or pretty good. We're alone together. It's one or the other. A new classic. How many times have you heard that? That's an oxymoron. Or smart bomb. How's a bomb smart? Or how about this one? Family vacation. Uh, oxymoron, right? So how is it that we're to have joy in trial? It can only be through the Lord. Only through our perspective of what he's doing and how he's using pain in our lives. Count it all joy. The second thing is first we count to have that attitude towards trial. This is why. Knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. This is the understanding. The reason that I can count it all joy is because I understand. I understand. It's, we have this knowledge that the Lord is doing a deep work in and through our lives through the pain. Knowing the testing of your faith produces 
patience. Do you know that? Do you trust that God is at work in the midst of trial in your life? James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, suggesting that they come in all shapes and sizes, different seasons, some big, some small, sometimes in between. Sometimes we handle the big trials of life better than we do the small trials of life. Sometimes it can cause us to come unglued when a tire goes flat or the refrigerator goes out or the hot water heater doesn't work. And so whatever the trial, to know and understand what, it, what is God doing? He's testing your faith. What does a test do? Unfortunately, it reveals knowledge, doesn't it? When you took a test and you chose to not cheat, it is honest about what you know and what you don't know. And what a trial does is giving us a window into our soul to see the status of our faith. I might think that I'm trusting the Lord. And then God says, okay, here's a trial. And I'm like, well, obviously I don't trust the Lord as much much as I thought. Or here comes a trial and you find yourself going, Lord, I trust you. Wow, my faith has grown. So, So one of the things that trial does is it tests your faith. It shows the condition of your faith. But also, it produces patience or endurance. God is growing you. He's growing this group of believers, this 12 Jewish tribes dispersed through trial and difficulty. How how do you have greater endurance? By going through difficulty and going through trial. Don't you wish you could just download endurance? Don't you wish endurance could just come into your life through sitting through a Bible study? This is the easy part. Sometimes I know it takes endurance to get through my Bible studies, but it's trial in our lives. It's difficulty, and this is where God forms our character. Henry Ward Beecher said this, We are always on the anvil by trials. God is shaping us for higher things. Always. We're always being shaped by God through trial. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. Isn't that true? Pain has a way of getting our attention. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. How oftentimes does God awake our soul through pain? How does God make us more like Christ? How does he make us more flexible and usable through trial? And this is important about understanding our God, that he loves us enough to allow us to suffer. He loves us enough to to go through pain. And because of that, we say, I count it all joy. Not all happiness, but joy. There's a difference. That my heavenly father loves me enough to give me the gift of pain. We go on in verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is the yielding. So the attitude towards the trial, I'm going to count it joy because I understand what God's doing. But the challenge, the heart of verse 4, church, is that we would yield to it. Let patience have its perfect work. Let endurance have its perfect work. Sometimes what's so challenging about a difficulty is trying to fight to get out of it, isn't it? You think of a fish that's caught in a net and it's trying to reel its way out of, out of the net. And so God's got us in a trial and instead of trying to get out of the trial, we yield to it. We say, okay, God, 
you know my heart. I would love for this circumstance to change. But if you're not going to allow this circumstance to change, I yield to it. I'm going to stop fighting and I'm going to let patience have its perfect work. I'm going to let endurance be built in my life through this difficulty. Would you accept the trials that God's brought into your life? That's a tough question. It's a tough question for me to ask as well. But when we yield and surrender, that's when the growth starts to take place. It's not a guarantee that everybody who goes through trial grows. Amen? We've seen it in our own lives. We've seen it in the lives of those that we love. They're going through trial, but instead of yielding, they're hardening their hearts. And they get more bitter instead of being more like Christ. In verse 5, God's provision in the midst of this, as we navigate trials, we have reality check and trial, if any of you lack wisdom. That is a great qualification. Do you meet those qualifications? Yes. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So we go through this process of trial. Count it all joy, because I understand God's doing the work. I yield to it. Now God wants me to ask for wisdom. God, how do I get through this trial? How do I get through this difficulty? It's more than what I can handle. Lord, you know, and we knock upon his door. God, would you give me wisdom? And there's a promise. God says, I'm, I'm willing to just give out wisdom like it's going out of style. Free refills, help yourself. I'm going to pour it upon you. doesn't cost you anything. His only requirement to be able to receive it is you ask in faith. Faith that he hears, faith that he's going to answer, Faith also receives his answer. A lot of times in my life, I'll ask God for wisdom. God provides it. And I'm like, God, are you sure? That sounds too difficult. You know, that, that, that wasn't quite the answer that I was looking for. Well, I guess I'm not broken enough yet to receive his wisdom. I'm still double-minded between my opinion and God's opinion. There's a warning here. Ask in faith. Don't doubt. Don't be double-minded. Don't go, go back and forth. Don't go from God's wisdom to man's wisdom to God's wisdom to man's wisdom. Trust God's wisdom. Lord, this is what you've told me to do in this trial. This is what your word says, so I'm holding on to your word. You have probably been through some trials in your life that all you can do is bear yourself into God's word, into his promises, and say, this is what I know to be true. I can't trust my emotions. I can't trust what my friends are saying. I have to hold on to the word of God. I'm not going to be double-minded. Once we become double-minded, we're tossed. We're unstable in all of our ways. So if you're in trial tonight, go to God. Ask him for wisdom. How many times do we go to a good friend? Do we go to a good book, a good podcast? Nothing wrong with all those things, but we don't go to the throne room of God. We don't go to our Father and say, God, give me the wisdom that I need for this unique trial. Verses 9 through 10 and 11. Verses 9 through 11. Guess that would be 9, 10, and 11. <laughs> Is a reality check in humiliation. It says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Lowly is 
oppressed or poor. He's specifically speaking to the poor and oppressed. He's saying glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in all of his pursuits. Reality check and humiliation. James is warning to someone who is rich and is glorying in their riches, saying, be careful, because just as a flower fades, so is all of your riches, and so is all of your pursuits. Now, the problem isn't with having riches. It's your attitude towards it. Money's not the problem, but the love of money is. If someone says, well, I'm taking glory in my bank account. I'm taking glory in my position. I'm taking glory in my possessions. God's word would say, that's a foolish thing to be able to glory in. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. What are we to glory in? That he understands and knows me. We're to glory in a relationship with God, and we can't take glory for that because he's pursued us, and he's died for us while we were sinners. So we glory in his unconditional love for us. And that's really freeing because there's no humiliation in that. You won't be humiliated in God's love for you. But if our glorying is in the accomplishments of this world, there's plenty of room for humiliation. We're going to move fairly quickly tonight. We could have taken several messages just on the first few verses, but Wednesday nights are through the Bible study, so we we, want to not have a 25-year pace of going through the Bible. So we're going to try to get through the chapter tonight. Is that okay with you guys? Well, I got the mic, so we're going to do it. (laughs) Blessed is the man who endures temptation. The ESV, English Standard Version of the Bible says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. It's specifically the trial from outside. God's saying, don't give up in trial. For when he's approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Glory awaits. Don't give up. Keep pressing in in trial. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So there's a difference here between God testing and God tempting. God will test us through trial to reveal our faith, but he will never tempt us to do evil. So here we have a reality check in our excuses. No more excuses. We got to stop making excuses. Sometimes we may say, well, God is tempting me to do evil. And why do these two things kind of go hand in head, trial and temptation? Because when we're going through an intense trial, it's a little bit easier to be tempted, but we'll find out what the source of that temptation is. It declares to us, it says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So God didn't make me do it. 
The devil didn't make me do it. My own evil desires made me do it. Now, I know we have a real enemy, and he loves to attack. But it's a lot easier to say, the devil made me do it, than to take personal responsibility for our own sin. No one likes a reality check in verse 14. No one likes to be humbled before God's word and say, the reality of it is, is my own evil desires led me away. I was tempted by my own evil desires. I didn't deal with temptation the way that God would desire for me to do so. Verse 15, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So we see this progression. Warren Worsby puts it this way, desire, disobedience, death. So it's speaking of those lustful desires, evil desires, not godly desires. Those go unchecked, becomes disobedience. Disobedience then results in death in our lives. That's what happens in our lives. That's the reality of the process of sin in our lives. So are thoughts really important? Church, are thoughts really important? Yes. We have an evil desire. We need to have that thought dealt with before the Lord. And we might say, well, it's my private world. It's my thoughts. Thoughts don't matter. Yeah, thoughts do matter. Thoughts become actions. You think about it long enough, and if it goes unchecked, it's eventually going to result in disobedience. I love the way the scripture describes this here. Desire has conceived. It gets to that point where it crosses the line, and now sin is conceived, and it gives birth to sin. And then when it's full grown, it brings forth death. It's not immediate. It doesn't happen overnight. It starts with desire, then there's conception, and then there's birth. It's still infancy stage, but when it's full grown, it's going to result in death in our lives. We need to take God's word for what it says. In verse 16, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. James is going to use the word deceived a lot in this last paragraph. He says, every good And every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. So our evil desire is trying to get us to do something that's going to lead to death. And it looks good. It's appealing to to our flesh. But the result is death. And we're encouraged by God's word. Don't be deceived. You have a father who really does want to give you good things in holiness, and in obedience, and it leads to life. So this is a contrast to verse 15. It's saying, look, God's got a great plan for you. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, and there's no change in him. There's no variation or shadow of turning. He's he's always good. Think about all the good things that God has, has blessed you with, you know? I had a bit of a cold over the weekend, and Monday and Tuesday, I started feeling better. Today, I feel great, and the world's alive to me today, you know, after not, not feeling so good. And I'm thankful the Lord has taken that cold from me. That's just a small thing, isn't it? But you go, wow, God's given me my health, you know. Thank you, Lord, for, for that. Thank you for the meal that you've provided, the family and friends that you've given to me, not to mention salvation that I'm your child, every good thing in your life is because of God, and he's given that to you, and we focus in upon that. One of the aspects of his goodness in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creation. 
His will, he brought us forth. He called us, he chose us, he pursued us so that we could be a first fruits of his creation. His pride, his joy, the apple of his eye. We get into the last reality check and it's growth. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. I love how James keeps reminding me, hey, reminding the, the readers, hey, you're loved. Hey, you're loved. You're loved by God. You're loved by me. Like any good coach, I'm going to challenge you because I love you. So he says, my beloved brethren, in light of God's goodness, in light of that he's the father of lights who gives good gifts, be swift to hear, quick to hear. Hearing is so important to the Lord. Jesus, one of his favorite sayings that he would say over and over in the Gospels, also in the book of Revelation, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think the primary place of listening needs to be to the Spirit. Yes, we need to listen to one another. We need to be quick to hear, quick to listen. But you know what we need to be listening to even more so is the Holy Spirit, especially in this issue of anger. If our ear is in tune to the Holy Spirit, we're going to hear the Holy Spirit say, stop. You're about ready to go there. You're about ready to explode. Walk away. Put a sock in it. You know, put a guard on, on the mouth. The listening begins to the Lord. Does God have your ear? In his word, this still small voice throughout the day, Lord, I want to listen to you. And then listen to one another. How many times would anger be diffused in our relationships if we listened first before we speak? Is that our habit to listen? God gave us two ears and one mouth to give us a signal. Listen twice as much as you speak, right? Be quick to hear. hear. Hear the Lord. Hear others. Hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. Swift to hear and slow to speak. Oh man, there's so many words that I wish I could take back. Things I wish I would have never said. And then it's too late. I can apologize, but it's like toothpaste out of a tube. How do you put it back in? It's not going back in. The damage has been done. The hurt's been caused. And can apologize and ask for forgiveness and make things right. But, oh, it would have been so much better if I would have listened to the Lord. It would have been so much better if I didn't just let my words fly. Sometimes words fly in anger, but sometimes they just fly in carelessness, don't they? You know, not, not thinking but before we speak. In the Proverbs, it says, in the multitudes of words, sin is not lacking. So if you talk a lot, you sin a lot. That's basically what it's saying. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of calm spirit. Slow to speak. Lord, touch my tongue. Lord, take control of my tongue. And then slow to wrath. Slow to wrath. Not all anger is sin. Jesus was angry in righteousness when other people were being taken advantage of. 
But most of the time, our anger is sinful. So God says, be very careful. Be slow to anger. Be a crockpot when it comes to anger. Make sure if you're angry, it's for righteousness and not because your toes are being stepped on or you're being taken advantage of. In verse 20, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God's work is never done in my anger. The wrath of man is not righteous anger. It's when we blow up and we sin inside of our anger. Do you believe that God could change marriages? Do you believe that God could change relationship with kids? Do you believe that God could cause us to be different in the workplace? Different in our neighborhoods? Different even in our driving habits? Right? Now we know that the home is oftentimes the place where anger gets displayed, doesn't it? And because we're at church and because we know Christ and the Spirit of God lives inside of us, we're not immune to this, are we? And God will use his word in our lives if we'll let it. Allow this to be imprinted deep into your heart. Allow the Holy Spirit to plant it in. Say, God, I'm listening to you. Memorize it. Cry out to the Lord in brokenness. Choose to say, Lord, I want to start listening. Listening to you and listening to others. There may be those in our homes that are saying things that we're not even hearing. We haven't heard for years. There could be things that the Lord has been communicating to us faithfully for years, but we're not listening. If we got the spiritual earwax cleaned out of our ears, God got our attention. We got to that place where we're saying, okay, I'm going to be quick to hear. I'm going to be slow to speak. God, would you change me? I'm so quick to speak. I'm so quick to, to get angry. Lord, I realize it hurts your heart and hurts the ones that I love and the ones that, that you love. In those moments of temptation, speak the word out loud. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God, your work is not going to be done in my wrath. And that's a reality check. Will we get it perfectly? No. But wouldn't it be great if there was some growth in this area of our life? Well, you know what? God's changing me. I'm not as angry as I, I used to be. And remember, God always writes his word for restoration and transformation, not condemnation. If you're taking this in the tone of condemnation, you're, you're taking it in the wrong way. Back to that coach. There's some coaches, when they get on players, the players do not respond positively. They crumble on the inside. They take it personally, and they're like, the coach hates me, right? And then there are other players that look the coach right in the eye, and they go, okay, coach, I got it. Let's do this. Let's go for it. And the same can happen to us. We can look at God and go, God, you hate me. I'm not your child. Or we can go, God, you love me. You're correcting me with your, with your word. Okay, Father, let's go. Do this work inside of me. We need it. I need it. That God would change us and transform us. Verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. The old King James says the superfluity of naughtiness. I like that. <laughs> There's a lot of superfluity of naughtiness. So lay out the filthiness and the overflow of wickedness 
and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. This is gardening. Get the weeds out so it can be good soil for God's word to be planted in. Meekness is the opposite of wrath. Meekness is power under control. Meekness is also really realizing my need for God's word. So is there wickedness in my life? Is there filthiness in my life? Take it out. Allow God to weed it out. Surrender it to the Lord. And then receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. There's power in the word of God. Give God's word a chance. Say, okay, Lord, I want your word to get implanted in me. I'm going to read it. I'm going to memorize it. I'm going to listen to it, meditate upon it, and see the impact of God's word in your heart and life. Another be statement, we've heard be swift to hear, but now we hear be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So we can be deceived about God's character, that he has good things for us, and we can be deceived in thinking that hearing's enough. Hearing God's word's enough. I went to Wednesday night Bible study, I listened to the word. I did my devotions, I listened to the word. I listened to Christian radio, I listened to the podcast. And it's great to hear the word, but the intent is to be a doer of the word. It will change the way we approach the word. God's word will get exciting if we approach every Bible study and every time we open God's word with God, show me one thing that I really need to put into practice in my life. One thing I need to do. One thing that I really need to know about your character. We get this illustration. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Or in today's culture, you take a selfie and you don't remember what the selfie looked like. The only problem is everybody else knows what the selfie looks like. So God's word's a mirror. It shows us, if we're willing to look at it, what we're really like. And we can't hide from it if we're honest. So what's the word of God showing about my character? Ouch, right? Why is God showing me that? For the purpose of restoration and transformation. It's a loving father. It's a loving dad that's saying, Eric, you got to look at this. It's time. Deal with it. Turn to me. Repent. Let me do a work in your heart and your life. But if we simply read it, And don't put it into practice where it's like someone who forgets what they looked like in the mirror. 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. I love how God's word described the perfect law of liberty. Man, there's freedom in God's word. There's liberty in God's word. Don't be a forgetful hearer. Put into practice what you read. I think this takes a little bit of work. It might mean getting a journal and writing down. God, this is what you spoke to me. I want to make sure to pay attention. Underline. For me, that that helps a ton if I'll take the time to write down the verse and jot jot a few thoughts. Because it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to, well, what did I read in my devotions this morning? I'm not really sure. But if I underline and write it down and, and pray about it, I tend to remember. And God, God brings that back to mind. Man, it's very easy to be a forgetful hearer. If Amber says, hey, Eric, can you pick up these three things at the store on your way home from work? Oh, yeah, got it. 
Those three things. If I don't write it down, inevitably, I'm over here at the grocery-only Walmart going, hey, babe, what were those three things? <laughs> right? It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? To, to pay attention, to listen, and begin to try to put those things into practice. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his own tongue, he deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless. Self-deception. Someone has this self-piety about themselves, considers themselves to be religious, but they're not bridling their tongue. Then James says that the religion is useless. You think of a bridle, it's, it's control. God wants to control our speech. He, he's able to do that if we allow him, allow him to do it. So a relationship with God is going to be evident in speech. Again, not that it's going to be perfection, but it is going to be evident in the way that we speak. In verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Coach James says speech, but also service, to serve widows and orphans. God, throughout his word, has a heart for widows and orphans. So a relationship with God should be expressed in those that have need, especially widows and especially orphans. If you're ever wondering, what is God's will? If we're ever wondering, as a church, what would God have for Rocky Mountain Calvary to do? It's James 1.27. That's what God wants. That's what God's desire is. Care for widows, care for orphans, visit them in their trouble. It's service, looking for those that are in need. But then also there's separation, pure and undefiled. Keep oneself unspotted from the world, unstained from the world. We live in the world, and the world is sinful. And the trick is, as we go through the world, to not get stained by the world. The only way that that can happen is by spending time with the Lord. So that we're not conformed to the world's image, but we're transformed. So what's this reality check declaring? Ouch. Can we just say ouch? That's what the reality check is, is declaring. How am I navigating trial? We do have a choice of how we navigate trial. We can count it all joy. We can understand that God loves us. We can yield to it and ask for wisdom. Reality check, am I glorying in the Lord or am I glorying in riches? You know, am I glorying in the positions of society, possessions of society, or am I glorying in the Lord? Reality check, am I making excuses for sin? Am I like, well, the devil made me do it. Or you, you were talking about your Irish basketball coach? I'm Irish, so there's no hope for me. It's just, we get angry, that's what we do, Right? This is the way my dad was, so this is the way I'm going to be. And hey, that's, that's the way that it is. Or, you know what, it's, it's better than the Joneses. It's better than, you should see, you know, you should see them. That's always a, that's always a good one to not have to deal with the conviction of, of sin. Am I making excuses for sin? Am I growing? Am I growing in being quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath? Am I growing in being a, a doer of the word? And as we close tonight, this is what I hope you hear, is not condemnation, but the loving heart, heart of a father. I don't know what kind of dad you had. I don't know that. 
And your dad may have brought nothing but pain in your life. So to see God as a heavenly good father is very difficult. Or you may have had a, a wonderful earthly father. But get your eyes off your earthly father and see your heavenly father and see that he's got nothing but love for you. You know, and I picture this loving father putting his arms around us saying, you know what? I want to change the way you listen. Because you really don't listen. You go through your days and you're tuned into yourself. And you're not tuned into me and you're not tuned into others. And you're hurting your wife that I died for. You're hurting your kids that I died for. You're hurting people at the grocery store that I died for. Are you ready to start listening to me? I love you. Listen to me. Son, I want to change the way you speak. I can do that in your life. And your words hurt people. And they destroy people. And I want to begin to convict you about things that you say. And son, not because I'm disappointed in you, but because I love you, I want you to hurt over the words that you say. I want you to weep over the words that you say. Son, I want you to see what your anger does. It hurts me. It hurts people. And now I want you to see what could happen if you started to listen, if you started to speak different, if you started to love instead of be filled with wrath. Hey, I love you. I love you. I forgive you. I paid the price for your sin. Now walk with me. Let's go. Let's go. That's the heart of a father. That's our loving father. So don't feel condemned but enjoy that time with him and enjoy that relationship with him and let him meet us in these areas. Let's pray together. Father, in a way that I can't communicate with words, would you communicate with us as our loving father? May we see you as the father of lights, that every good thing dwells, and God, not for condemnation, but would you begin to convict us through the power of your word because you love us and you desire to grow us and change us. Father, we're sorry for not listening, for not listening to you. Sometimes out of busyness and sometimes out of willful rebellion and Tonight, God, we give you our ears afresh. Father, forgive me for not listening to you. Lord, forgive us for the words that we speak that are careless, the words that we speak in our anger. God, we know it hurts your heart and it hurts those that you love and those that we love. Would you touch our tongues through a work of your spirit? Would you, would you change our hearts in a way that only you can? Lord, anger is a real thing. Wrath is a real thing. 
And we know there's not going to be perfection in our lives, but we do desire change. And would you forgive us for sinning in our anger? We acknowledge that before you. And as we take communion, would you bless this time of communion? May it be an intimate time with you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.